Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady, and I am here at Overland Expo West. And I am here with a dear friend, Bill Dragoo. Bill and I have had some amazing adventures together. When we started this podcast, the goal was to inspire and to educate. And there are a few people in my life that I have been so inspired by and educated by as Bill. And Bill runs the Dart School Adventure Writing Training. So that is a, a great resource for those that want to learn more about riding adventure motorcycles. And he's also the director of the motorcycle training program here at the Overland Expo. Bill and I have done some truly interesting adventures, including Elephant Hill and some some other places in Utah that required even winches with motorcycles. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. But Bill, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And a special thanks to Red Arc for supporting this week's podcast. Red Arc's Topro Elite brake controller has been torture tested in the Australian Outback. The dash-mounted head unit allows you to switch between proportional for the highway and user-controlled for the trails. You may not trust the terrain that you're on, but you can always trust Red Arc's Topro Elite. Tow with confidence by visiting redarcelectronics.com. Scott, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And, you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is you've got this exceptional writing pedigree and skills. In fact, if I remember correctly, you won the GS trophy with BMW. Was that not correct? I did. I won a place on Team USA in 2010. And then I won the uh, Rawhide Adventure Rider Challenge in 2008, which is kind of what lit the fuse on all that. Yeah. Talk a little bit about how you got started in riding motorcycles. And maybe more important as a selfish question is, what were the pieces that came together that allowed you to ride so proficiently? In the old days, we didn't have training. I mean, maybe some people on the West Coast did, but in Oklahoma, where I came from, we didn't know what training was. Mm. And we just went out and tried things. So there was a whole lot of hold my beer moments. Sure. I started, um, you know, as a, as a young man riding on the back of a Harley with Norman's first police officer at five. And that probably uh, got me really started in my interest there. Uh, a few things happened along the way. At 14, I bought my first motorcycle, uh, working for 65 cents an hour at the Sonic Drive-In. Right on. I was fortunate enough to have the little Honda 70. And really, still while I was 14, I began racing motocross. I met a fella, a good friend named Norman Heineke. He uh, went on to be state champion uh, soon after that. And so he was sort of my mentor in getting started racing. Norman and I both slipped off into trials and we both did quite well, uh, you know, in top levels in the state in both events uh, back in the, what was it, back in the 70s? So uh, sure. if you remember that, no, you don't remember the 70s. Okay. <laughs> was, that means you, <laughs> you probably I was just a glimmer. But yeah, so that, you know, the, the trials background, the motocross background, those things really started me wanting to master some skills on a motorcycle. Yeah, amazing. And, and you can see it, especially the low speed handling of these large adventure bikes. And it's, it's a, it's a thing that we see come up regularly in conversations around adventure motorcycles, this kind of dichotomy in viewpoint around something that is very small or something that is very powerful and that has some presence on the road. I think it's important to discount the reason why I think a lot of people buy big motorcycles, which is kind of this ego thing. I think if you just take the ego out of it and you look at the positives of both a small bike, is much less expensive. 
if it gets stolen in another country, you know, it's not such a huge loss. But then on the other side, a large motorcycle has a lot of presence on the road. When we're in Colombia, I mean, you've ridden a lot in Colombia with Micho, our mutual friend. And I noticed the difference when you're on a large GS and you're riding in the in the road with the rest of the cars. They notice that you're different, that you're not another 125 kind of hugged along the side of the road. So I noticed that cars give you a lot more berth. And then, of course, they can carry more payload. They can pass very quickly and safely. So what are some of the things for you that you see as an advantage to having a larger motorcycle, not only in North America, but in developing countries as well? Well, I'll, I'll preface that. Uh, my answer was saying that there is a place for all of them. Uh, simplicity is certainly a, a great way to roll. And there's a lot of people just want that. And then there's there are those who can only afford maybe a, a, a small motorcycle, mm. a used motorcycle or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. Sure. But there's a joy to riding a big motorcycle in technical terrain. Technical terrain might be Bolivia, the sure. roads out there where uh, my first time down there, the, the people that I met asked me to come back because they said we're hurting ourselves. And in fact, I was speaking with one of them in the uh, the Salt Hotel down there, or there's a name for it, but uh, uh, on the Sailor de Uyuni. Sure. And this guy's foot was just crushed on wow. his motorcycle. And he said, please, please come back after my foothills and help us learn to ride these motorcycles better. Mm. And of course, that was the, the bikes are too big. We've brought the wrong bike. But I did go back multiple times and began to teach them. And what they learned was that the analogy that I like to give is it's it's like owning a pet rhinoceros that <laughs> um, is well-trained. Sure. And you can, you can tap it on the shoulder. You can nudge it with your knee. You can give it a carrot. Mm. And it will do a lot of things that you want it to do. And it mm. does them very, very well. You just don't want to get it irritated, right? Sure. So developing the skill to ride one well creates a joy that's beyond that of simply thinking you've mastered a smaller, lighter motorcycle mm. that you can do a lot with muscle without a lot of energy. Mm. Big bikes, it doesn't matter how much muscle you have. You're going to run out of energy. True. And if it falls on you, you end up like my friend in Bolivia. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great point. And I've certainly had a lot of joys riding smaller motorcycles. And, and like we talked about, there is this real advantage to something that's less expensive, um, that's easier to pick up, uh, especially when you get into really technical terrain. But I noticed, I noticed when we worked with the team through, we went through Canyonlands and we went through Beef Basin and we went through Elephant Hill. These were fairly technical routes, I would say, especially on a GS. I noticed that if you use enough body English, I was watching you ride and you definitely weren't trying to muscle the bike through. You were you knew what the bike was going to do. You kind of had a sense for how it was going to behave when you hit that ledge or whatever, and you put your body in the right position to be able to counterbalance it. Is that one of the things you find to be most effective? The first thing that we teach is the triad, clutch brake throttle, mm. and how to manage that. And then we begin to incorporate foot peg or peg weight steering, which is also called enduro steering. So the analogy that I would give there is like pushing your bicycle, not touching the handlebars, but leading it by the seat, mm. making it turn right and left, going through certain terrain or on flat terrain or whatever. But it, because of the geometry of the bicycle, it goes where you ask it to simply by leaning. Sure. So with our feet and the peg weight steering, we're leaning it left, leaning it right to initiate turns. Mm. Um, the more complex uh, elements become counterweight steering, which we can talk more about if you want to. But when you begin to use the triad clutch brake throttle, so we're putting the bike in tension, clutch throttle sure. against brake, then that bike becomes extraordinarily stable. 
and then we use a, a little bit of peg pressure one direction or the other, then it's stable within a turn, not just going straight. Yeah, I have noticed the effectiveness of that tension, especially using the rear brake and yeah. kind of dragging the rear brake a little bit under a little bit of clutch tension. That definitely makes a difference. But I, I remember when we were going through that trail, I felt like I was a Neanderthal trying to throw the GS through it, whereas you were you were like a gazelle when you were mo- And of course, you made a lot more of the obstacles than I did. But I, I think I was running out of brute strength is what the deal was. Well, Scott, you have omitted part of this, and maybe it's going to evolve throughout this conversation, but this was November. It was, there was a lot of snow and mud, and it was 27 degrees, as I recall, and I think it continued to drop. Yes. And finally, our salvation was that the ground froze so that you didn't have to push my motorcycle out when I ran out of gazelleness. (laughs) That was, it was literally one of the most enjoyable trips I've ever been on because it was so difficult. I mean, it was, it was such a physical exercise and to see some of the people that we were with, they were just moments away from just not being able to do it anymore. Smoked. Totally smoked. One of my favorite moments in that trip was, and it's pitch dark it's freezing cold. We're sweating. I mean, we're mm-hmm. dripping in sweat. We know what's going to happen when we cool down. And I'm looking at our friends and I said, Scott, we need to think about bivouacking up here. And I'm looking at the snow on the side of the mountain, uh-huh. trying to figure out how to carve a flat spot out to, sure. to, to lay down. Sure. And we did have camping gear with us, fortunately. And you said, let's give it one more, like 45 minutes or something like that and see if we can crest this pass. And we did, but just before we crested it, but you and I both were aware. In fact, we were shuttling back, helping our friends get out. You looked at me and you put your hand on my shoulder and you said, Man, I love this kind of stuff. <laughs> and I said, me too. I mean, this is this is why we're here, it seems. Exactly, exactly. And we learn so much oh, yeah. when we stretch ourselves a little bit. And maybe that's the thing that we can encourage the listener is if you have a bike that you find to be a little bit big or maybe something that you haven't quite had enough training to be able to operate in the ways that you want to get out with a trainer and stretch yourself a little bit, push yourself just a little. And that's the, that's the beautiful thing about going to training. And and I remember that going through the rawhide intermediate program and, and spending time with you and other great instructors is it gives you that little bit of confidence to try some stuff Mm -hmm. that you may be able to stick that may now become muscle memory. Well, fear is one of the number one I guess, failures or cause of failure, excuse me. And that fear is typically generated by lack of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so you talked about confidence. So it's difficult to have someone say, just take that step. And that step looks like in the Indiana Jones uh, movie, I don't remember which one, but he has to step down into the chasm. And they said, when you step down, then the ledge will appear, but Mm. right now it's not there. Well, that's a leap of faith. Well, it's hard to take that leap of faith initially. So fear is holding us back, but then knowledge replaces fear. So think about this. You're walking down a street in uh, maybe someplace. It's a little seedy, a little scary, Mm. and there's a dark alley. And from that alley, you hear this, these popping sounds and these lights are flashing and people are screaming. You're probably not going to turn down that alley to go see what's going on. Yeah, most likely not fireworks. Most likely not. <laughs> but then these floodlights come on and you see the entire scene and there are teenagers running around. Mm. They're, they're in the, one of these inflatable fun houses. They're having a ball. They are throwing fireworks. Mm. Now your paradigm completely changes because 
oh wait, this isn't what I thought it was. So knowledge, your knowledge of what those sounds and those flashes and those screams were about mm. replaces your fear. Well, that same method works with knowledge of riding a big motorcycle mm. in bad, bad places. This is what we profess to do is yeah. teach people to ride them in those places. That's right. So those skills begin to make you feel a little more confident at a lower level mm. than on a very tall, steep ladder with closely spaced rungs, mm. you begin to get more confidence, more confidence, and eventually you're not looking down anymore. Yeah. And, and it is true. I think it applies to all travel is that the only way to gain confidence is through experience. And the only way to get experience is to start, is to try whatever version that is, whatever that easiest first step is, that definitely seems to make a big difference. And like you said, building towards that knowledge base that makes us feel confident as riders. And, and I do remember that night, um, it was almost dark and there was sounds of metal crashing into rock and screaming. <laughs> if I remember correctly, one of our poor, poor uh, fellow travelers there when he ran his GS into the side of the cliff. Yeah, I think I think the I think the front brake stopped working at about he that. He broke point. his front brake. His yeah. clutch began to slip. It was an older GS, yeah. an older, uh, air, uh, not an airhead, it was an oilhead, so, but still with a dry clutch, began to slip and he was very fatigued. Plus yeah. he was handling, I mean, to his credit, he was handling a bike that was probably 75 pounds heavier than ours. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's the heaviest bike that they've made, I think. Yeah. And so he was, he was dealing with that and that's when the winch came out. Yeah, you were ready right. to unload the Tacoma <laughs> and the, the, we had a vehicle with some yeah, gear in it. That's right. And you were saying, Hey, we got to stash all this gear behind these rocks and we got to get this guy in this motorcycle yeah. out. And I'm like, Hey Scott, I got a winch and like that little thing that it, it worked. worked. <laughs> it totally, it totally worked. That well, was an XT 17, man. It did the job. That was very fun to see. That was really a cool moment when we finally got to the top. And then I have no idea how we got down to the bottom of elephant Hill. I think it was because we couldn't see, we had no idea what we were actually going over. So yeah, that moment of, uh, of, uh, ignorance was bliss. Well, you and I both had to ride back down the hard way first yeah. and then back up. Yeah. And I had the little headlamp on and it didn't have my helmet on because I needed the headlamp lamp to see where I was actually looking, but I had to go back again and then winch Steven up yep. two layers or two sections of that uh, switchback going up. That was unbelievable. And you were just going back and forth and back and forth. To, <laughs> I was, to, to I was pretty smoked. You were. I was pretty, when we got to that pizza place, I mean. Oh, that was the best pizza I've ever had in my life. <laughs> in my entire life. Absolutely. Tell us a little, like start to fill in some of the color of your life, because if I remember correctly, you, you have you been a pilot as well? Yes. And, uh, and you also worked with vehicles uh, at a dealership as well. And I mean, tell us a little bit about what made the adventure of Bill DeGruy. I mean, what are some of the things that you've done in your life that you think were the critical ingredients towards being the adventurer that you are now? Besides marrying Susan? <laughs> well, that was a good choice. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I worked professionally as both a motorcycle mechanic, a automobile mechanic, and an aircraft mechanic. And actually, aircraft mechanic was first professionally. So during high school, I went to... Um, our, our tech school had an aircraft mechanics program, and I took half of my uh, AMP training there. As soon as I graduated, I went to Spartan School of Aeronautics in Tulsa, and I uh, finished my AMP. During that time, I began to fly. So one mm -hmm. of my fellow students at the AMP school was a flight instructor. Neil okay. Smiley was uh, one year older than I was, okay. but vastly more knowledgeable. He could actually fly an airplane. Wow. So I started flying with him, and our very first lesson, he taught me to loop, roll, and spin a Cessna <laughs> 150, or at least he demonstrated how to do it. And on That's my, a small aircraft, a very underpowered small aircraft. Yeah, yeah. A hundred horse, uh, yeah. even a hundred. is a continental, little continental motor in it. But yeah, it was 150. It's probably a hundred. Uh, and I remember on my first solo flight, which was eight hours into my flying, 
There have been those who have sold it in less, but it was, it was a pretty short time. I did, wait for it, a loop, a roll, and a spin. <laughs> During your solo? <laughs> in my first solo flight. Oh, no. I did. And I can't imagine I, that. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. I, yeah, I split assed out of the out of the roll, and uh, I saw a red line on the, on the airspeed indicator. But you know what? That thrill just, I, I couldn't wait for the next mm. time. And I realized the wings didn't come off, and I remember thinking, okay, I know if I pull... Pull too hard, they will, so I won't, and I have plenty of altitude not to. The airspeed I was worried about, didn't know how long the air, the windscreen would stay in the airplane. Sure. But after I did that, I just thought, I've got to do this better. Mm. So part of the adventure spirit, I think, was was really lit up then. There were events before that, but that, that was one of the really major components. And then uh, with motorcycles, I mean, racing motocross, mm. just the thrill. The, and I won a lot. I was very fortunate. Um, I think we didn't have much competition there, but, uh, but I did do well with that. And here again, it was that, uh, it was a, a bit in your teeth kind of um, feeling that I couldn't let go of. I just, I had to win. I had to be the one in the front mm. of that. So competition with both myself and against others was a big part of the early days. And I think mm. that formed a lot of my spirit. And I, do you find that you are more competitive with yourself or are you more competitive with others? Boy, that's a really good question. I used to be more hard on myself whenever mm. I didn't do well, mm. but, uh, I'm going to disclose this in public right now. Something happened to me last month that uh, I was hoping would never happen. Mm. And I have won about every slow race that I've ever done. So that's a real great, it's a good competition for somebody my age, you know, not a fast race, but a slow race. And it requires a lot of skill. My son is getting very close. Uh, a couple of my instructors are, are just nipping at my heels, but nobody's really out and out beat me yet. Justin Kleider, uh, he was a, a GS Trophy competitor. Uh, he had applied for the GS Trophy, an outstanding rider. He worked for Holly Davidson now demonstrating the Pan Americas. And in fact, I think he's here at Op- Overnight Expo. He beat me by six inches last month. <laughs> <laughs> I challenged him to that and I will probably uh, live that down eventually. <laughs> for, but, sure. for sure. For sure. But I I was so happy for him. Mm. And that is a change in me from when I was younger. I would have been very unhappy. In fact, I would have challenged him to best two out of three. Mm. And I wasn't going to do that because I was happy that Justin won. Sure. And we both had a good run and uh, it, it was a lot of fun. And that's what it's about now more mm. for me is seeing someone else succeed. Uh, you Usually not when they've beaten me to do it, but if that's yeah. the way it's got to roll, then I'm good with that. Yeah. So I love seeing people succeed. And I think that's one of the things that has really also formed uh, who I am as an instructor. Yeah. That is honestly more than the financial aspect of it. I mean, unfortunately, we have to be paid for what we do. But one of the reasons that we're the cheapest out there is because of that very reason. Mm. We just want to see people do well. Well, and I can I can certainly see that in even the way that you worked with all of us on that trip. You were just uh, very open with your knowledge and, and so encouraging. And I can see that in you as an instructor as well. Uh, another question that for me comes to mind is when you look at the fact that you've done the motorcycle racing that you you worked on aircraft and you worked on vehicles when you look at that at that chapter of your life what were some of the things that you felt were the most important lessons that you learned during that point of competition and rapid gaining and knowledge what were some of the more important lessons for not only you personally but for travel in general i can't think of um of any specific things that have uh been like a great moment of awareness that mm. the light has come on. Um, 
as far as a lesson, I mean, there are a lot of lessons per se that come along. Don't go so fast. Don't be so overconfident. Practice before you go out and actually try to, to win a competition. Some of those things, I think, are are instrumental in being successful and mm. doing well. But then when you translate that to um, say going somewhere off like what you and I did in the Traverse, the Utah mm-hmm. Traverse, you need to be prepared for those things. You can't just go out there willy nilly and try to to make it happen. Yeah. So go out there with your equipment and, and yourself prepared to succeed. And we can break that down some if you'd like. Yeah, so true. And that was one of the real benefits that we had with having Sinway there being the one that created the Utah Traverse. We had his knowledge of, of where to go. We had had a lot of time making sure that we had the right equipment. We had great motorcycles, all in good condition, except for for one. But uh, we had good equipment along with us. I think that was very helpful as well. The one thing that we didn't anticipate was the weather, and that can certainly change. And And I know that that was one of the lessons for me from that trip was we have to always respect the weather. It's easy to feel that we've got this amazing gear. We've got these amazing people that we're with. We always hear about the cascade of events where one small thing goes wrong, which leads to another small thing going wrong, which leads to people fatigued and making poor choices and, and then injuries and other things can come after that. And I think that for me, that was the one big takeaway from that trip was that we got right up to that edge. We did. I think it would have been good to have a couple more moments of let's make sure we've got the right, we're doing the right plan. That we're not just pushing ourselves deeper into the abyss. We were very lucky at the end of it that it all turned out the way that it, it did. Uh, but that was, that was a tough one. That was, I mean, we were in the weather for sure. I have definitely been on trips that where I was much less prepared than that. So as you said, we had, we had food, mm-hmm. we had decent gear. The fact that we got sweaty was a little bit of a, that was a, a, a challenge, a you know, concerning thing. because I remember when we were, when we did finally settle in and we began to, it wasn't it above Bobby's hole. Right. And we started, we set up camp and all. I remember being so cold, so mm-hmm. cold and, you know, got my tent set up. You were over there, uh, you and Stephen, I think, and Stephen was making that coffee or was up yeah. the next morning. <laughs> I'll let you describe that coffee. That was funny. But uh, everybody's just eagerly waiting for this. And he's trying to squeeze it through like plastic. And, I don't know. Permeable plastic. It didn't work. But we're, we're all just dying for the coffee. <laughs> yeah, we I'm sure that was the next morning. But yeah, um, so it, it is an MSF instructor also, a Motorcycle Safety Foundation. One of the things that we talk about is the accident chain. And each link of that chain has a name. And it might be weather. It might be glare you know, sun, it might be road conditions, maybe grass mm-hmm. uh, from mowing or from dew, it, it's slippery. It might be fatigue. It might be uh, an illness. It might mm-hmm. be anger. It might be the condition of our motorcycle, the tires, the brakes, uh, even the suspension. But any one of these things might not be the one that gets you. But the fact that there there is this combination that becomes this chain mm-hmm. that drags you down, that, that can cause failure, mm. ultimate failure, and a serious accident, injury, or death, then the, the idea is to break that chain when you see it starting to evolve. Yeah. You just need to, you just need to cut that chain. You need to stop that chain right there and begin to rebuild that yeah. particular system that you're about to rely upon to go out there and, and do what, like what we did and what others do. And I remember if, and if, if you don't 
want to talk about this incident, I would totally understand, but you were down in Columbia and you had a very serious accident occur on a trip that you were on and talk a a little bit as much as you'd like about what happened and what were the links of the chain that you saw? So for someone that's getting ready to travel internationally on a large adventure bike, what were the links in the chain that you saw that led to that? So the incident you're referring to is uh, when our friend Cindy was riding with us and she was a a very eager, energetic uh, and courageous off-road rider. And there were maybe a dozen of us all total on this trip of mixed skills. She was the lowest of the skill level there on that trip, as I recall, that time. There were some factors I was not aware of as well, and we'll bring those up in a moment. But it began to get uh, later in the day. We had uh, we had, had to stop to do some camera resetting. One of our riders really, he had a lot of cameras on his mm. person and his bike, and he wanted to set them. We wanted to respect that. He was a guest mm. on this tour. We wanted to respect that, let him capture the, the event as, as he wanted to. And then we began to have other issues, uh, a couple of crashes, uh, a hole in an engine uh, valve cover on a BMW, a boxer Beamer, and uh, we had to stop and repair that. The glue took time. Each of these things is is pushing that sunset time closer mm. and closer. Well, in Columbia, you really don't want to ride after dark, uh, especially not in the jungle area on this abandoned railroad that mm-hmm. we've been riding on. Uh, there were a lot of just treacherous hazards. Some of the bridges we were crossing, it might have been a couple of 300 feet down to the rushing water below. We started sure. seeing these crossing them and the rumbling across the railroad ties, no guardrails, loose railroad ties or just sit there with their own weight. And then some of the long trestle type railroads uh, or railroad bridges, uh, mind you, all the, the, the tracks are gone. Sure. Some of those tracks were used as linear uh, supports on these trestle type bridges. And there might be a, a, a two by six or two by eight plank in the center of all that. And there could be big gaping holes that if you went through you, the best you would do is fall and break your leg. If you go through it, it's a long ways down. So these things were beginning to occur and we were beginning to see them in the daylight. Well, finally a flat tire on one of our guests' bikes uh, shut us down. The sun was setting and we got it fixed. We kind of went through a demonstration of how to do it. Took extra few minutes for that. Once we got ready to roll, well, the tube had been pinched. So it's time to fix it again. So our ride leader said, you know what, Bill, you need to take this group and go on. I was riding chase. I had not been on this route before. He said, you need to take the group and go on and get to this, this next village, which was about an hour and a half's ride. And by now, and even the time of this discussion, it was pretty dark. So uh, I said, well, let me have your GPS because I don't know the route. And it was pretty much stay on the main road, but you know, Columbia, night, sure. jungle. Totally. You don't want to miss the road. So uh, no phone service, needless to say. So I zip tied his GPS using the battery to my my handlebar and rode. Well, I noticed that Cindy was getting farther and farther back. I would stop periodically for the group to regroup. And so I said, okay, Cindy, come up here and ride with me. And then I put Sid, one of the, the top riders with our group as a, as a chase rider. I'm making the best decisions that I can. Sure, sure. But now she is riding beside me. I'm in slight left echelon, a little bit behind her so that she's not eating my dust or worrying about hitting me. And we're combining our headlights. She has no dust. And during this ride, I learned, Bill, I I can only see it through one eye. Oh, Great. She has no peripheral vision either. So this is the best we can do to try and mitigate the circumstance. Sure. And we came to one of those tall trestle railroad bridges. You can picture it, the great big tall steelwork and all rusty. It certainly wouldn't hold up a train anymore, but it would hold up motorcycles. And 
I stopped to assess this bridge, had refused to stand up prior to this, but then during the training we did just before the event, she learned to stand and was very good at it. She proudly and perfectly stood up on that motorcycle and head out across that trestle. Not a good choice. Mm. And I was not in a position to stop her. Sure. Well, the next thing I knew, she I saw her wobble, her front tire went down, and all I could see was her taillight. So at least the bike hadn't fallen through the bridge. But when I ran over to where she was with no light but my cell phone, there's no Cindy. She had fallen through the bridge. Wow. And I had no idea how far down it was. I could smell the river below. It was, it was a slow, swampy type river. So I ran down around. I looked. I finally uh, heard her on the other side. A local had stopped, fetched her out of the water. We got her back up. Incredible. Uh, through the ants, got the ants off of her, got her some water. She had some bruising, some hemato- big hematoma on her arm. She had ingested a little bit of the water and got a little sick, but they gave her some stuff that got her better. And she actually went to the hospital to be checked, which I think was a very good choice on the part of our ride leader. And she's okay. She ended up in great condition. But when I looked back at that event and thought about the the circumstances, that accident chain leading up to it, well, it was a, it was a tough one. I mean, everybody had made what they felt were the best choices, mm-hmm. but then in retrospect, we could see there are things that now I would never do the same. I would mm. never try to lead from behind any rider, no matter who it was. Yeah. I mean, I, I say that there might be somebody who was in a position, there might be a circumstance where I needed to stay with someone. But for the most part, I'm going to be in the front if I'm leading the ride. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to try to lead from the back. So, and there are other one, other things, you know, as we're looking at the time and knowing where we were in stations along that route, I probably would have started uh, upping the energy in, let's complete this ride a little bit more than that, which our ride leader had in fact started doing. Sure. He's juggling between his guests and sure. their desires, their needs, pushing them, causing an accident, sunset. You know, at the bottom line is this, it's adventure. It it's is adventure. You put yourself out there not to be hurt, but so that you might. And so that you have to be the one who is uh, in charge of yourself mm-hmm. in, in making these decisions. What an incredible event. And the, obviously we're so grateful that she was not injured uh, significantly during that. I think about the number of times that I have been so close on a motorcycle and even the times that I've gone down where you you think like this is no big deal and either the bike or yourself has gotten some injury from it. And I think that on the motorcycle, that's that reinforces to me the importance of getting good training, wearing the right gear and being with the right people. If I was to summarize motorcycling for me, which is oftentimes even while I'll, why I will ride alone, because I have found that in some groups you get this dynamic going where people want to ride faster and faster and faster. And if you're fairly competent or, or maybe like yourself, for example, People know who Bill Dragoo is, they know your skill, and now they want to show you what they can do. So they start to maybe push themselves at that 85, 90%. And I remember one time I was riding out from Torweep and I was I was with another rider and he was a big fan of the magazine and he didn't have a lot of experience. And I was just doing my thing. And I was I was probably riding at 65 or 70%, riding quite fast. And he was right there. And I realized that if I don't shut this down, something else will. Um, And it was, he was not doing anything wrong. He was eager to ride at that pace and to, and to be right there with me alongside me. And I realized if I don't back off, then this is going to create a real problem, maybe for the both of us. And I think that that's one of the things that's nice about riding in a group of people that you have that rapport with, that trust with, you don't push each other beyond what they should. You're paying attention to what the other people are doing. You're 
seeing if they're getting fatigued. We all experienced that on the Utah Traverse. We were paying attention to how everyone was doing. Have you been drinking water? Mm-hmm. You know, I, when you spend a lot of time with someone, you know how they speak. Yeah. And I have found that one of the earliest indicators of excessive fatigue is they start to speak differently. They use different words. Maybe their vocabulary starts to shift. They express themselves in a different way. And you can be, you can see this is the start of them being affected by dehydration. They're getting overheated or they're getting over fatigued. What are some of the other things that you've noticed in leading so many groups that you find is a great indication of how someone is doing? Attitude. Um, we profess that there are four cornerstones to successful adventure riding, balance, control, judgment, and attitude. Mm. So the first two, balance and control, are more more kinesthetic. You know, mm. they're what we do with our bodies. The, the balance on an ability to stand upright on two feet. Mm. Uh, control, in this case, it's the ability to use the controls of the motorcycle to maintain our balance. Sure. Judgment. Um, should we go? Should we go around? Should we stay? Should I go back? Should I have ever ridden with this guy in the first place? Uh, and then attitude, the most important, I think, of those four cornerstones. And that's what says, hey, I know I'm hurt. Uh, you know, my bike is, is damaged. I'm dragging everybody down by kicking my, you know, kicking sand here. Mm. Or you put a hand on that guy's shoulder who has dented his tank and broken his wrist and you mm-hmm. said, hey, I know that this this is really a bad day for you, um, but we're going to get you home. We're going to get your bike home and you're going to have some great stories to tell when we get there. Exactly. So those are the four cornerstones, any one of which can get you through when one or more of the others fail. When you see balance fading away, mm. you see judgment going away. Mm. Someone wants to peel off the trail and take this extraordinary, you know, steep hill or, or sketchy trail or something. So that balance and control, maybe they're just not riding well mm. as well as they had been before. Or you see that downward spiral of attitude. Those are some indicators that uh, I think as a, as a co-tour leader that I have seen and noticed and then Maybe the tour guide and myself have collaborated and saying, you know what, we should talk to this person. Mm. And when you do that as a collective unit where two or three people walk up to that individual who is starting that spiral and maybe one puts a hand on the shoulder, you don't want him to feel closed in, trapped, Mm. cornered, but to know that this is a consensus that, hey, we're going to stop and rest a little bit Mm. or we need you to slow down. Please don't ride so close. Please don't do wheelies in the pack. Whatever it might be that you see that needs to be changed, when you actually can recognize that through your experience and stop something before it happens, you never know whose life you've saved or what injury you've prevented. For sure. And you're not only being considerate of that individual, you're protecting the other people that you're with and yourself, even your own reputation, business, health, safety, all of those other things. Um, before we pivot to the four wheel drive stuff, because you have a lot of a lot of history and inf- interesting stuff to talk about on the four wheel drive side as well. When it comes to an adventure motorcycle, what would you say is the top three or four modifications or things that you bring on your bike that you, for you, you just wouldn't want to leave without? Harley David. Davidson's going to love this one. Adaptive ride height. Yeah, that's great. I did a a story for a a magazine uh, just about four or five weeks ago in uh, in Michigan uh, using the Pan America. And that's not a modification. That's a a factory option that you have on that bike. But it was so cool. You know, I used to want to push a button so that I could stop riding my Honda 70 and I would be riding a Triumph 650 Bonneville. This was back in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. Uh, Or I would want to push a button and not be riding my XL250, but be riding my CZ125 motocross racer. So we try to make these bikes do it all motorcycles. And I, I currently ride the 
BMW R1250 GS uh, HP mm. with the uh, sport suspension. So it it does have tall or low suspension that I can select. It just doesn't do it when I stop. Mm. So fortunately, I'm tall enough to handle that. But that motorcycle is so incredibly capable out of the box, both on-road and off-road. All of those uh, pet rhino things that we like about it, that it does these things for us. You can pull yourself onto that motorcycle if you're out of balance. My 170 pounds uh, doesn't influence it that much initially. Mm. And so it'll let me get myself situated in before it starts to get out of shape. So the bike is really capable on and off-road. But sometimes I fall down. Sometimes on Elephant Hill, I case out with mm. the front wheel in the air uh, on the bottom of the engine. You know, if you're really going to ride one off-road, think about protection for yourself and for the motorcycle. All of your strike points for personal, you know, personal strike points, elbows, knees, hips, things like that, shoulders. Those are places you need to protect yourself. And of course, the motorcycle has its known strike points. Mm. A boxer BMW, you want good engine guards on that. The yeah, plate. so you don't lop a cylinder off. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and even just punching a hole in one sure. like happened in Colombia and set us back an hour and a half. And sure. Could have been, that could have been a, a, a link in that chain that, that caused mm. the failure. You know, the final was a final straw or whatever. So uh, armoring your bike up properly, you're not trying to weight it down. Uh, you know, farkles, uh, functional uh, things that sparkle, uh, kind of that contraction. So some of those things really mean business. Mm. You know, and I, I can give you a list. I mean, there's a story on my website about battle-tested GS that mm. goes through this, uh, you know, ad nauseum. The tiniest thing can cause a failure. I had a uh, an incident recently on my BMW where I struck a rock and the side stand switch hit the rock directly. And I looked down at that and I thought, that's not going to work anymore. Well, I had a little Turatech guard, uh, just a little $25 part probably, on my side stand safety switch that took the beaten and it was crushed and the switch was not touched. Wow. So knowing the strike points on your bike, the things that might take damage and then preemptively preventing that damage by mm. covering it up with something that's a that's a, a proven accessory. Sure. Then I think those are really important things. And then you have comfort items. Uh, my saddle, I mean, Sergeant saddle on that bike that I've had on four motorcycles back to back now, you know, mm. is, is just that allows me to go a long distance on the motorcycle. Proper luggage, you know. Mm. Uh, What's your favorite luggage right now? Well, I'm using Moscomoto right now. Uh, I've used Wolfman in the past. They're both very, very good. But Moscomoto, I think, leads the industry right now in so many ways. Their customer care, their customer service, the uh, the product itself, the evolution, the constant evolution. I mean, they are definitely Kaizen, that constant, never-ending improvement uh, in their approach because they are such avid riders. You know, Pete Nash in particular have become good friends. And I see what they do. I see the result of their their love and their care for the, the sport and the people in the sport and how they take care of them. Many of my students who have mm-hmm. used this gear have come back to me and said, this is amazing. I tore this. I, I I hooked a log and ripped it and I sent it in and I can't tell it was ever damaged, mm. you know? So just the, the overall, it's not just the piece, but it's the, it's the people behind the piece. Sure. And then the piece itself. Um, it's just good stuff. So soft luggage as opposed to hard luggage is a big deal to me because legs get broken on hard luggage. And I, I have had so many people, probably six, honestly, that I could come up with names for who I have warned or they have known better and they broke their leg with hard luggage. Mm. Stepping down, it's often in sand. Sometimes it's in a rut. Sometimes it's just a dab, but that leg gets caught behind that hard luggage. And the difference is getting hit with a sledgehammer versus a half inflated basketball hard sure. luggage 
versus soft. And no disrespect to those who sell hard luggage. They make some really good stuff out there. And they have their place. They have their if place. If you're mostly riding on the road or you're in a country where you're concerned about security, security of your goods. Yeah. It's the, sure. your priorities shift. Adjust your motorcycle according to what you're really going to be doing with it. There's plenty of data out there mm-hmm. to find out what works and what doesn't work. The forums are not always the best. Mm. Um, you know, I, I hate to say that, but they're not always the best. So mix the opinions that you get with with your own pot uh, and make that stew that tells you this is what works for mm-hmm. me. You ever talk to someone who's been where you're going oh, yeah. on a motorcycle similar to what you ride and then get their insights for sure? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That, that's a good one. So let's let's pivot a little bit and let's talk about your love for four-wheel drives. And a special thanks to this week's sponsor, The Medic. When you're heading out, you don't want anything to hold you back. Whether you're planning a week-long adventure or a quick overnight trip to your favorite outdoor spot, we've got you. The Medic's CFX3 powered cooler is designed with any size adventure in mind. The CFX3 allows you to bring more of your favorite food and drink along for the ride, no matter how far you plan to go. Available in multiple sizes, the CFX3 is built for the demands of outdoor use and comes with a handy app that gives you complete control at your fingertips. It's the state-of-the-art, designed-for-rugged-use cooler that you can rely on and enjoy for years to come. So let's talk about uh, your vehicle and what vehicle you currently drive and how you modified it. We have a couple. Uh, probably not as many as you, but we do have a couple of... of well, I've, um, pared, I've pared down the fleet quite a bit. <laughs> good for you. Good for you. I remember our friend Tiberio and Susanna <laughs> yeah. had the, uh, the the old disco. That's that right. Had, so That's yeah, right. Yeah. But so, um, you know, for me, the, the interest in four-wheel drive came when I was actually teaching flying and flying air charter in Ada, Oklahoma. And I met someone who had put a V8 motor in a Toyota FJ40 Land Cruiser. Mm. Uh, and I just fell in love with that thing. I love the sound of it. I love the look of it. And it wasn't long before I had bought an FJ40 with no motor and I put a short block Chevy in it, built it, every bit of it in my little one car garage there in Norman, Oklahoma. As That's I a there. great garage, by the way. Oh yeah. Well, this was a garage before that one. This oh, okay. Was, was, yeah, <laughs> long before that one, I was, gosh, I was in my twenties at the time, I guess, uh, maybe thirties, maybe thirties at the time. But, uh, so I, I really had an affinity for the FJ40 and the Jeep CJ7. I worked uh, with Jeep as in a dealership for a number of years, both as a mechanic and in sales. And so Jeep was, um, Jeeps were very interesting to me. They were small, they were agile, mm. capable, they were cool, they looked good. We managed to haul three children around in the back seat of a CJ7 for a long time, camping, driving it from Oklahoma to Colorado. Isn't that amazing twice. how people were able to use a small vehicle like that? Go on, go camping. I mean, it's funny, you'll see two two people in an excursion and they're pulling a trailer. I don't understand. It's like, how much stuff do we have to bring? Yeah, yeah it's yeah. amazing. It's amazing what you can do with something small and simple and that's you know, just right. You said something once, Scott, when uh, we, we had lunch with you in Baja one time. Yeah. You were coming north. We were going south. Right. We stopped there on, that was one, really fun. on the intersection of five and one, I believe. That and, was so cool that we were able to connect there. Oh, it was awesome. But, you you know, I, I looked at your G-Wagon and I'm like, where's your stuff? And you said, well, I packed for this like I packed for a motorcycle trip. And I used the same gear. And it was freeing. 
you know, I mean, I was driving at that time a, a really nicely built Tacoma. I mean, we had an on had 30 gallons of onboard water, awesome onboard truck. compressor, awesome truck, but it was heavy. And so subsequently built a forerunner that uh, it was going to be Susan's vehicle. And then whenever she had to swing out a swing out tire carrier with uh, five gallons of water and five gallons of fuel on it and had to lift it to get the you know the thing completely shut, it wasn't exactly what she wanted to hold the grandkids around in anymore. Sure. So, uh, but it became an amazing overlanding vehicle for for us. It was built significantly lighter mm. and more, uh, it wasn't more nimble, but it was still very nimble, mm. a bit more economical from a fuel mileage perspective. And it held stuff inside where it couldn't get as dusty. So we really have moved to that as kind of a favorite. And we've used it both with a rooftop tent. So we've got a really nice easy on rooftop tent, also um, Oz tent. Sure. A quick up tent. Sure. So depending on our circumstance, we'll use one or the other. And sometimes we'll just throw a backpacking tent in there mm-hmm. for, for quick setups. But that vehicle is really nice and it forces us to use the mentality that you projected then in mm-hmm. Baja at that time. So we've leaned a little more towards that since then. Yeah. It's funny how the less that we take with us, the more memories we bring home. That has been my experience. And it's funny, the more gadgets and systems, it just seems like that they just consume our time, that we're, we're on an app trying to figure out what the temperature of the fridge is instead of looking at the sunset. And I have done all of that. I have made all of those mistakes many, many times and for a very long time where the things consumed my experience because they're shiny, they're farkle, they're mm-hmm. They're interesting and they're, and you think that they'll solve problems, but in most cases, uh, these gadgets just create problems. They can, um, you know, there's a few things that work great. There are, there, there are, there are a number that work great and there are multiple items that will serve the same purpose mm. to different degrees. Helgi Peterson, uh, globe, globe writers, I believe it is, mm. uh, you know, Norwegian, uh, leads some of the most incredible expeditions around the world on motorcycles. He is very anti modification to motorcycles. He tells the story of a guy on a KLR 650 who had an updated stator and all kinds of electrical gadgets, things to make him more comfortable and to make the ride more interesting, I suppose. And it did. Pretty much everything failed on that bike and Helgi began to make some really strong rules about how you could prepare your bike Mm. for a trip and less modifications was a a big aspect. So in overlanding, you know, probably my favorite overlanding vehicle that we own right now is our 1976 FJ40. Perfect. And I love that vehicle. It beats me to death when I ride it. I've messed with this. I've done all this stuff, but it's not super modified, but I mean, I've tried to make the suspension good. I've put uh, poly bushings and greased everything and, you know, put uh, Teflon between all the leaf springs. It still rides like a bug board, (laughs) but I I never stop smiling when I'm driving that vehicle. Yeah. And that's one of our, one of our goals uh, in the hopefully not too distant future is to really bring that up to a not uh, modified state, but a very well improved um, stock condition, overhauled sure. motor, and some things like that. Yeah, in fact, uh, Susan wrote a great story for us about your trip through. I think it was Oklahoma with the FJ40, wasn't it? Uh, Arkansas, Arkansas, the Arkansas Traverse. We borrowed, uh, borrowed, you know, plagiarism. Well, it's something about flattery. I think not plagiarism. Sorry, that was a Freudian slip. Wasn't it? <laughs> but no, we we did the 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 uh, Ozark Traverse, I believe it was, and um, and used that truck for that. Had a lot of fun with it. Yeah. And uh, did some stuff in uh, southeastern Oklahoma also. And uh, oh, that might have been it. There's a Butterfield. That was the trip, I believe, that was was actually in your in your magazine. Yeah. That's it. Awesome. Fun stuff. No, it is. There's a couple things, other things that come to mind for me. You've also always focused on 
your physical health and fitness. It, you've, you've mentioned to me many times that you believe that being ready for adventure, physically ready for adventure is a big component of the success that you've had, not only in competitions, but in traveling around the world. Talk a little bit about what you find is the most important things to do as a writer to keep yourself fit and healthy. Well, writing for one. And, you know, when I'm competing, I'm more focused on my fitness than whenever I'm just rolling and training. So I I don't think I'm that different than anybody who gets extremely busy with their work, forgets or allows themselves to be less focused or active on fitness. So for me, setting a goal or having a goal um, that requires fitness really is helpful. You know, if I may borrow from my my wife's recent experience, she just got out of the Grand Canyon yesterday morning uh, doing the uh, Hermit Trail and she trained for months for this, carrying a 32 pound backpack so that she would not be hurting uh, too much for the the actual trip. And she came out and said, Hey, this was a blast. And yeah, my legs are a little tired. And and by today they're fine. Mm. So it was, it was really the same for me when I was racing mountain bikes, for example, I would tell people, and here again, I won a lot. I won two state championships back to back on the mountain bike. And I, I told people train harder than you will ever race. Mm. And that sounds funny. Like, why wouldn't you race harder than you train? Well, you don't have to race harder than you train. Mm. If you train harder than you will ever have to when you race, it it worked for me. I mean, I was in the attic on my compu trainer, uh, building my motor uh, every morning at 530 to, to really get super fit with that. And then alternately, I would do um, core exercises mm. so that I had an extremely strong core and I could do a lot of reps of whatever it was that I wanted to do. And have you found that that has translated in other ways to travel itself? Have you found that having that base level of fitness has been important for you for travel as well? Without question, fatigue, just the ability to follow my wife, the places she likes to go because she is a a foot traveler and she really likes to hike. And when I've let myself get down on fitness, it's cost me time with her Mm. on those trails. So the times that I've been more fit, if she tells me that a trail is five miles long and I discover that she might've shrunk that a little bit and it was actually nine or 12, uh, I'm okay with that. You know, because you're ready for I it. have the fitness to be able mm-hmm. to continue and do that. So uh, it's never a bad idea to maintain that fitness. You never know whenever there's a situation that you might need it. And, uh, you know, it's uh, my inspiration and my um, motivation goes up and down. And my activity mm. on that goes up and down. As I said, when I have an activity that requires fitness, that's when I'm best. Yeah. At it. I've heard when people talk about you and your writing, I, that has come up many times. They'll, they'll mention how fit you are. And I, and I believe that it's an interesting thing to consider if you're going to try to move around a 600 pound motorcycle for a day, if you've got this really strong core and this great base of fitness, even if you're a great writer, if you're not fit, it's just going to be a lot more difficult. And the chances of, of maybe one of those links in the chain coming to bite you, I think is a factor. Without question, fitness extends your writing time, mm. both in, in minutes, hours, days, and, and you know, years. So that helps a lot. Skill extends your writing time. Skill actually causes you to need less fitness, but Mm. it doesn't cause you to not need to be fit. Sure. So, because you will find yourself getting fatigued and then starting to see some of those failures within the balance control judgment and attitude area. Sure. That makes sense. Even though you're a skilled writer, you can still get tired. You can still get heat uh, fatigue, you know, Mm -hmm. it may not just be physical fatigue, but it's just the heat. Yeah. Um, Just the ability to perform. Uh, I do a lot of teaching. So I am out there talking and standing on my feet and helping pick up motorcycles. And that alone is, there is some element of fitness to that. Mm -hmm. It's not enough. Um, but it is something and it keeps me going. And also sure. it's a routine that I'm familiar with. Mm. 
So when you put yourself into a situation that you might not be familiar, you better have some reserve somewhere. Yeah. A little bit in the tank. Exactly. Um, one of the questions that I do like to ask is if there is a, a book or a few books that you have read that you found were, were inspiring for you or have helped shape the course of your life, or if there's podcasts that you've been listening to that you really enjoy, um, or any other resources that you'd like to recommend? Well, there are a few, um, you know, from an entertainment perspective, Jack Rape has written three books on uh, the motorcycle rider's diet, I believe it is, and conversations with a motorcycle. And he can be a little crass, but he is funny. Oh, good. And he is very experienced as an on-road rider. So from just a pure fun to read and also something you can relate to because, you know, he's around my age and he rode back when, um, you know, street bikes, the fast ones were green <laughs> and, you know, 750 Kawasaki and, you know, the, the smell sure. of two stroke oil and in the gas and all. So he's a fun one to read. Uh, Peter Egan in Leanings, uh, Leanings and Leanings too. Peter Egan wrote a column for Cycle World for a number famous, of years. Famous guy. Yeah. And I aspired to write like him. I mean, mm. I love his writing and I wanted to be the kind of writer that he is. And so I, I practice his art as much as I could. I learned as much as I could from him. So his books were both inspirational from a perspective of a writer, mm. but also as a motorcyclist, he can bring you to that, that moment of joy of just sitting and looking at a motorcycle popping open for him. It's always a Guinness, not my favorite beer, but, uh, and staring at it, you sure. know, the GCF and all, which I've borrowed from that, even for some, some of my writings before. Sorry, Pete, <laughs> but, um, yeah. So, you know, he's a very good and inspirational writer, but going back to some of the early books that I read that kind of set me on this adventure path, Desert Solitaire by Ed Abbey. You know, he was a bit of a, of a maverick, of a radical. Uh, he did not want paved roads going to any place that anybody uh, could hike to. Mm. And so, and I think that there needs to be a balance in there. I think we have overdone that in mm. some ways uh, significantly. And in some ways, you know, we've done good things for people who did not have the ability to access our land. Sure. So I, I understand both sides of that coin, but Ed Abbey and just the way that he writes in the book Desert Solitaire was um, it put me there and it made me want to be there more. Mm. So, uh, you know, he also wrote The Monkey Wrench Gang and a couple of other books that were interesting. Uh, don't follow his advice in The Monkey Wrench Gang. You don't need to tear up equipment that's building roads. It's not, you don't have to do that. It doesn't work. It'll just get you in jail. Yeah. But uh, so those, those are some that I think have been uh, very interesting to me. Yeah. Oh, that's great advice. And then one of the other things that I like to ask, and again, with you having been such an inspiration to me, if, if someone was sitting across the table from you at, at a little cafe in, in Baja and they, they said, Bill, what you do is so cool. What, what, what advice would you give that person that was just getting into travel by motorcycle or by four wheel drive? What would be the, the, those few words of wisdom that you would give someone that was just about to start that journey? Don't wait to start your journey. Don't wait to have all of the, whatever it is, fill in the blank that you need to do it. Um, we see so many people who are waiting to build the perfect rig or the mm. perfect machine yeah. before they will go, or they need to have a certain amount of money to do it. My good friends, Eva Rupert and uh, Sterling Noreen, yeah. they, they Wonderful sing the people. same, they, they are, they sing the same song and it's, uh, you know, I'm not copying them on that. That's, that's something I've always felt. Run what you brung. John Penton, you know, the founder of KTM, really, I mean, here in the United States, he, 
Media really started with, with some of the bikes that became KTM. And he would ride his 175cc NSU to races long distances away, peel the lights off of him, race, win, and put the lights back on and ride at home. He didn't wait till he had the perfect machine that now we feel like we have to have to do it. But you need to stay within your scope as well. Uh, stretch yourself, but stay within your scope. Yeah. Think of Lois Price in uh, her book, uh, Lois on the Loose. Mm. And uh, Incredible story. From, uh, from the Arctic Circle to Tierra del Fuego, the tip of South America. And she calls herself this pasty face Brit. Yeah. She's just this, this gorgeous, cute, whatever, a fun, funny, energetic, and very intelligent, well-spoken British uh, redhead that climbed on an XT225 Yamaha and rode that distance uh, mm-hmm. from, from the north to the south as far as you could go from, from each end and made a lark of it yeah. in that book. Yeah, she's, she my, she's my hero. Oh, I've I'm decided. Telling you, I'm telling you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She did things that, um, you know, people would say, oh, you shouldn't do that because you're a female or you don't have the, the knowledge or the skills or you don't have, know how to fix your motorcycle. You know, she... she she learned things mm-hmm. that uh, on the road. Yeah. And you would think, well, what about in South America when you need a chain or a tire? Well, you know what? They have motorcycles down there too. And they also have mail service. They do. And, you know, sometimes you just got to sort it out. And that's the adventure. If you can embrace that adventure, the changes in it as, hey, this is part of it. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I, I would I would agree. Yeah. Those that are listening, take a read of Lois, Lois Price's books. They're all absolutely fantastic. For those that are listening, how do they find out more about you? How do they find out more about Susan, your wife? How do they get to read more of your content, learn about your training and follow your adventures? So Susan and I both write for a number of different magazines. Uh, she has, for the past several years, edited a couple, uh, Outdoor by Four yep. and um, uh, ADV Moto Magazine. So so now she's writing a book of her own, but she has a website, susandragoo.com. Real simple. S-U-S-A-N-Dragoo.com. And she has a lot of publications on there. Her work is much more diverse than mine uh, as a historian, uh, a foot traveler and, and all that she is. Uh, some very interesting content there and then some truck content as well. And then mine is buildragoo.com. So it's very simple to find as well. And there's an area called publications on mine. And, you know, I still do a, a regular column for Ride Texas magazine. Uh, that is most of those, I think, are on my website, Dart Tips. Uh, some of my previous columns uh, for Roadrunner magazine sidetracked. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of those are fun. Some are funny. Some are informative, uh, sure. maybe inspirational. I don't know. Totally. But uh, there are the short versions, and then there's some longer versions there also. Certainly Overland Journal, um, you know, it's a, a little harder to get to some of those, but, uh, you know, there's some good stories that yep. uh, that you and I have done together For uh, sure. on some some really cool trips. But, yeah, my website and hers, uh, susandragoo.com or buildragoo.com, you can find more about us there. And also with what we do with DART, uh, Adventure Rider Training, is, is uh, on my website. Well, thank you so much, Bill, for your time. And for those that are listening, and if you love motorcycles and you want to go see the world by motorcycle, I could not recommend highly enough the idea of getting training before you go. Build that knowledge like we talked about and the and that time in the saddle so that you have confidence when you go into the unknown. And thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Thanks. <laughs>